The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to Season 2 of Retail Therapy, a podcast proudly brought to you by American Express. The ARA is the oldest, largest and most diverse national retail body, representing a $360 billion sector which employs 1.3 million Australians. As Australia's peak retail body, representing more than 100,000 retail shop fronts and online stores, the ARA informs, advocates, educates, protects and unifies our independent, national and international retail community. 95% of our membership is small business, who are our focus for Season 2. Small business is big business. In this season, we'll be getting to know the people behind small businesses that are the lifeblood of so many of our communities. We'll be chatting to industry leaders who are shaping the small business landscape and learning more about the digital innovations that are driving them to success. Joining me for some retail therapy today in the Amex Lounge is Rowan Hodge, CEO of Andersons, a well-known floor covering business that was founded in the late 1950s. Until 2008, Rowan was the CEO at Battery World Australia. Previously, he was retail manager for Westfield, CEO for Domino's Pizza in Belgium, and has also held various other leadership positions. And I'm delighted he could be with us today. Rowan, welcome. Thanks very much, Paul. It's great to be here. You spent most of your career in retail at Anderson's now and before that at Battery World, Westfield and Domino's. But where did it all begin for you? What was life like growing up? Growing up? Well, uh, I grew up in North Queensland, so I'm, uh, I'm from Atherton and grew up um, all over country Queensland before doing most of my schooling in Townsville. Um, and so I think it was, it was probably a bit of a small town perspective on the world. Um, I moved down to Brisbane to study. And that was a reasonably common travel path for, for high school graduates um, then. And then um, I started working in hospitality, um, partly for the money and partly for the love of it while I was a student. And I just really loved serving the public. That was, that was something I felt um, very comfortable with. I loved the, the camaraderie of, of doing that in a team. And, um, and then I, I fell into retail mainly because um, that's where the leadership opportunities were. I was working at the, um, the Sheraton Hotel in Brisbane making cocktails and um, uh, there was a senior role that opened up and I applied for it inside the hotel and I was told I was too young. I was only 19. I was too young for that sort of a role and so I was full of vinegar and I said, well, I'll show you who's too young and I, I got the courier mail, which is what you did back then, and I applied for about 50 jobs and uh, I, got a, I got a job from Silvio's Dial of Pizza, which was a little, a little mob out of um, Brisbane, who today, in their sort of current entity, are the biggest master franchisor for Domino's Pizza internationally. And so that was quite a ride. Wow. Did, did, you, did you, so I guess you sort of fell into retail like most people did. So clearly you can, you can mix a good cocktail, so that's always good to know. I'll keep that in mind. Um, did you have different ambitions when you were younger? Yeah, I think I did. Well, I, I always knew I would be interested in the business world and uh, I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know whether I wanted to be a business owner or, or what, but 
there was something about the business world that really intrigued me. And I, it's kind of cliche, but I went and asked a guidance counsellor at school and I said, you know, what do I do if I want to be a businessman? And they gave the correct response, which is that's a terrible question. Oh. Um, but I took that to mean they had no idea. So I went to an accountant and I, I said, I want to hire you. And the accountant said, what for? And I said, I want you to tell me what a business person does. And this accountant, I think they sort of, they, they were both amused and, and also not going to be taken lightly. So this fellow agreed to meet with me, but he said, I'm, I'm going to be a client. So he's going to charge me, charge me $50. Oh. And he, he showed me some P&Ls and uh, he blacked out the names of the companies. I assumed they were clients of his and um, talked me through what the P&Ls were. And that was my introduction to business. Anyway, wow. uh, the um, two of the fees really stood out. There was the accounting fees and the legal fees. And I said, what's this? What's this uh, huge sum here? And he said, oh, that's what you'd save if you studied accounting and law. <laughs> so I went to Brisbane and studied accounting and law. Wow, <laughs> that's a great story. Um, look, you, you spent um, quite a number of years working at Domino's, including a stint in New Zealand, and you were also in Brussels, um, where you were CEO of Domino's in, uh, for Belgium. How did those, I mean, given your background coming from a small country town, how did those international opportunities come up? I think um, one of the things about the Domino's organisation is that um, they, they cultivated a pretty special culture. and. Growing that culture is the hardest thing they did. It's probably the most important thing they did, I'd suggest. And so they tended to promote from within a lot. And um, that was definitely the case in New Zealand. So I was, um, I'd sold my franchise stores in Townsville and I rejoined the franchisor as a state manager. And um, New Zealand was a territory that the, that the Australian franchisor owned but had never developed. So they'd had, they'd had this... Um, I don't know what it was, maybe a 30-year lease or something like that, the rights to the New Zealand market. And they'd had those for 10 years without doing much about it. And they decided the time was right in about 2003. And um, they tapped me to go over and do that. And uh, I was actually absolutely thrilled. You know, it was the chance to live and work abroad and to, to live and work in another culture, but not a particularly scary one. I mean, um, you know, New Zealand is very different to Australia, but it's not very different either. So it's... Um, it's definitely not the not the other state of Australia. They don't like that very much. <laughs> definitely not. <But> definitely, um, <laughs> it was different enough to be a really great cultural experience, and to to really expose me to the challenges of trying to great, gain scale from zero. Where you know we we assumed there would be this international brand that the Kiwis would already recognise, and there certainly right. wasn't. You know they they'd never heard of Domino's. They used to call us Donomos and Dolmios and all sorts of things. Oh. Um, and we had a pretty tough time for the first year. Um, then we started to gain some traction with our organic stores. And um, then we had uh, the, my first exposure to merger and acquisition, which was the um, takeover of the Pizza Haven stores. And so that gave us an immediate scale, uh, which together with our methodology quadrupled their sales. And we, we managed to reach, I think, 60 shops in three years and overtook Pizza Hut as the market number one. They'd been there for decades. So Amazing. That was a really, that was a fantastic experience. Um, Belgium was really different. So Belgium, I wasn't working for Domino's at the time. Um, I had, uh, uh, through, a, through a need to be more Brisbane-centric for my wife, uh, I, had, 
I'd taken different jobs that were Brisbane-based specifically to try and sort of do less travel. I'd been working all over Asia for Domino's. And um, so I was in one of these roles and I thought it was just a dream job. It was, uh, I think I started there in around um, the middle of 2008 and it was for CTM, Corporate Travel Management, wonderful company, fantastic founder, um, you know, really terrific history and a great vision for where, where they were going to take that business. And they wanted the general manager to come on and be this new role that would help, help them scale and prepare for, you know, big things in the future like an IPO. I was so thrilled to be part of that business and really excited about it. Mm. And a few months later, the, um, the GFC <laughs> happened. Mm. And so corporate travel was not a handsome time to be in corporate travel. Um, I dare say there would be echoes of that right now, but um, it was a terrible time to be in corporate travel and, um, and I was the newly created role. Right. So I, was, I, I had a redundancy. It was, my, it was the first, first time I'd been sort of um, let go and it was terrible. So I reached out to my old network and uh, as it happened during this time, um, Domino's had floated. Um, they had uh, taken that, that capital raising and purchased territory rights in Europe, in France, Belgium and the Netherlands. And they had um, fantastic leaders running uh, France and running the, the Dutch market. Um, but they, they had this business in the middle, this Belgian business that was a little bit of a basket case. It had been there for a long time and, and it had been direct owned by the American master franchisors. Um, it had never really enjoyed any particular success. And, uh, and I, had, uh, I had a semester of high school French under my belt and that was about my qualification oh. to work in Belgium. So they, 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 wanted, though, they wanted that culture, that Australian uh, Domino's culture, they wanted more of that um, to sort of seed the soil in the European markets. Oh. And um, their, their leaders over there were doing that job. They wanted me to reinforce that, that rank. And so once I learned some French, uh, working in, in Paris and looking after a territory in, in the west of France, they moved me up into Belgium. And um, uh, I had a, a pretty terrific time there for a couple of years. And then, it, uh, like a lot of other things in my career, we turned Brisbane-centric again um, and, and returned to Brisbane. Uh, and and the, the adventure overseas was over. You, you, you mentioned culture, and of course, you were sent there to sort of instill the, the 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 work ethic and the culture that was actually here in Australia in Belgium. How did you go about doing that? What were sort of the key learnings? Do you think? Well, I think one of the, I mean, Belgium's a terrifically complex country. So um, you know, it was only created in 1830 um, from three offcuts of the Prussian Empire, the the French uh, and the uh, the Dutch. And they all gave away the bits they didn't particularly want. And they said, right, here's a king. Now all be happy. Right. And pretty much immediately, the, the people of the North and the South didn't really like one another at all. Um, that, that was, um, there were hundreds of sort of small cultural clashes, lots of language barriers. So um, in one of our pizza shops on a given night, uh, there might be five, five languages spoken. English would be about third or fourth. Um, so there'd be there'd be French, there'd be um, uh, Flemish, which is like a, a, a Belgian dialect of Dutch. There'd be um, probably English coming in at third, if not Turkish, and then Arabic would probably round out the five. So right. um, you've got a country that's small; you could drive across it in two hours. Um, the north hates the south, and nobody really gets the middle, which is the Brussels sort of um, mixed area. 
the languages were uh, difficult. The cultures were really different from the north and the south, from the, the Dutch origin um, uh, ancestry and the, the French origin. And then um, on top of all of that, uh, they, they had different palates. We were selling food. So um, right. we were selling, uh, selling pizzas in the north. Uh, it might have Whitloff on it. In, in the south, uh, they want to have uh, Roblachon cheese. Oh. And so really, really different. And um, so I found, I found um, the, the most effective thing I did there was probably try literate um, communications where I'd be, I'd be composing things in three languages, um, uh, vetted for me, obviously, in the case of Dutch yeah. especially, which I, I spoke very, very little, and um, communicating in sort of triplicate. And we did that with everything from store visit reports to, um, you know, the, the meetings we had with franchise partners. And I think the other, the other thing, though, was just to try to keep people aligned. Um, mm. I think that that was probably the most difficult part in a, in a country where, um, uh, you know, that they had no government for longer than Iraq. Um, one during the period I was there, they set the world record for a sovereign nation without a government. Um, there, there were just tremendous uh, challenges around things like heritage construction and fit out, where you're trying to install a pizza shop in a building that's 200 years old and, right. and you know, uh, has all sorts of restrictions on, on the facades and things like that. Um, there were also challenges with traffic. You know, this was a motorcycle market for us because it had to be. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was a very difficult place, very congested place to drive. And so they're all very, very challenging things. But there's, there's a certain alignment that comes through a common struggle as well. And I actually felt that that was probably the most uniting thing among those franchisees was that they were all up, up against those challenges. And if they were in it together and we were prepared to make it fun and try hard and be a supportive franchisor, that success would come. We knew the formula would work. We, we had applied that formula successfully in other countries. It was already firmly taking root in, um, in France and in, in Belgium, uh, sorry, in the Netherlands, but in a different way. And so, yeah, we, we knew it would work if we applied it. It just had some peculiarities that we needed to try and solve for. Um, oh. I'm, I'm terribly proud that in the end we, we did manage to uh, pretty dramatically increase the number of stores and the penetration in that market. Um, today, Belgium's the high-performing market. It's a fantastic opportunity that uh, I'm proud to have been a part of. Um, amazing. And so terribly complex and I guess quite challenging but equally quite rewarding. Now, I know you, you're a big fan of um, small business and particularly fran the franchise operation. Maybe if you just explain to us a little bit about why f you, you, you love franchising. In fact, you've been quite an advocate for franchising and why it's, why it's, um, why it's a winning formula. Yeah, well, look, I, I think it can be. And I, I don't think I'd force franchising on anybody. I think that the, the business model needs to be right for franchising to, be, to really thrive. Um, when we look at uh, the franchises I've, I feel that I'm lucky enough to have worked for, they generally begin as a two-margin business where there's an, a sufficient margin in the transaction, in the customer transaction, for a franchise all to have a slice and for the franchisee to have a, a marketable profit, a sustainable profit. Because if, if you don't have that dual margin um, capacity and you franchise your business model, then all you'll really do is either, you know, live like a pauper or uh, drive your franchisees into duress. 
And so I think I think there are there are undoubtedly some franchise models that are probably not as well suited to franchising as they ought to be. Mm. And I think I think that potentially makes franchising problematic in some cases. The thing that to get to your question, Paul, the thing I really love about franchising is that it's symbiotic. Yeah. Because when it's working properly, um, the the win of one is the win of the other. Yes, everybody so, wins. Yeah. So I, I don't win if my franchisee isn't winning. Um, and and I think that in my opinion, like all good um, like all good microeconomics, it has a center of gravity to it. So um, imbalances are quickly sorted out by history. And so if you're if you're uh, trading at high high margins and your franchisees are miserable, then you're not long for this business uh, because time will sort you out. You won't be able to sell franchises or attract investment, or you won't be able to. Um, you'll be dealing with uh, uh, an unhappy franchise community. Uh-huh. Um, and if you, if on the other hand, you embrace the symbiotic nature of franchising, it's been my experience that the franchisees thrive and you attract more investment because capital goes where it's most welcome. Yes. And fundamentally, franchising is a decentralised capital model where the local owner-operator looks after the customer, they exploit their own capital and labour locally, and by doing that, hopefully they make a fair margin and they, they have a sustainable business. Well, if you're in the market of selling that dream, then it's a particularly potent thing if the current franchise community are thrilled with their lot in life. Uh-huh. So it's easy to focus on one and cause the other. And by its nature, then, that makes a good, a good franchise sustainable and therefore, I think, franchising a good model. So let's talk about your current role at Anderson's, a business that was founded in the late 1950s in a town called Gatton in west of Brisbane. I've seen you describe it as a country town organisation, but it's grown to be much bigger than that now. So tell me more. Sure, sure. Well, I think um, for me, country town service is an interesting concept because whether you live in a city or not, when you hear country town service, it speaks something to you as an Australian. There's something about that that you relate to that is, um, I, I believe, overwhelmingly a net positive and that, you know, is a little bit aspirational even. The idea that, that you know, there, there's an importance around country town values like mateship and community and lending a hand. Um, for, for, for us as a franchisor, you know, these are the origins of servant leadership, but I think it's a very strong aligning characteristic um, for a franchise group because if you, can, if you can identify your culture as something that's hard to describe but you know it when you see it, uh-huh. then it's easy to measure yourself against that and your decision-making against that. You could ask anyone at any moment, is what you just did a good example of country town values, country town service? Uh-huh. And people will know that without any other sort of fancy scorecard. So that's what I love about this organisation. It was founded, as you say, in the 50s. Um, it, it was founded here in Gatton. I'm in Gatton today at our headquarters. Uh, it's still right here where it was founded. The, um, we've moved building because we had to. We got too big. We used to be in an old picture theatre, which was pretty cute, um, not for the people who worked there when it was air <laughs> conditioned in summer. But, um, you know, these days we're in a world-class facility. We, um, we fundamentally, though, are still staffed by locals. So um, almost without exception, our team are all from right here in the Lockyer Valley, this vegetable growing area. And uh, our tenure in our, fr- in our team is very long. 
Um, so we, you know, every year we'll have people past their 20 or 25 or 30 wow. year uh, anniversary working here. Um, the institutional memory here is strong. But the, the thing that is really strong is that country town spirit, the idea that these guys are part of a cohesive team, that they pull together and that they'll, they'll, they'll be a great faithful servant of their franchise community. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's, uh, I, I get a bit, uh, I don't know, a bit too gushy about it, but I think um, in a sense, you, you, you know, there's a saying that you can't grow good crops in bad soil and that's something that they say around here. And to my mind, culture is just as important when you're growing a business. And with franchisees, it's probably 10 times more important because you decentralise your influence by having the local owner out there in a store. And if they're not aligned with your culture, the potential for your brand to be damaged is really considerable, even damaged by just inconsistency. Um, So having something that aligns you is really important. I think for us, our culture is just that. Yeah. It's sort of like you're almost running, it's not one company, it's a series of small businesses that have collectively become one company, which becomes um, challenging but also rewarding because you've got, um, they're all part owners in the business, which makes it quite exciting. So you do specialise in all things floor and floor coverings, everything from timber, vinyl and tiles. How's the market changing and how, what do you see as the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead? Yeah, well, it's a fantastic question. I think one of the things that we... Um, notice is probably like all retailers is that change is the most difficult thing to manage and what's peculiar I think to our sector is that our sector has been relatively slow to change um, you know carpets and vinyls have evolved very little over time and how they so- how they were sold and installed um, has changed very little over time as well the companies that make them have changed very little over time um, what has definitely changed the most I believe and most of all recently is that customer pathway to purchase. So in the olden days, um, one of our stores would take a couple of swatches of you know, some vinyl or carpet to a, a house to do a measuring quote. If they're a good salesperson, they come back with an order and you install that product and away you go. Um, that might have been the customer's first interaction with our business, other than what they knew from word of mouth or TV or something like that. But now... With this changing media landscape, changing consumer behaviour, um, changing changing sort of social behaviour, mm. what we're noticing is that there's these entirely new influences on the customer during this discovery and inspiration and education stage. And it seems to me that to some greater or lesser extent, this is all brand new. Yeah. If we go back even five, even five years, but certainly 10 years, it just wasn't there. So our customer now is increasingly browsing and pinning on Pinterest and, um, you know, sharing on Facebook and influenced on Instagram and they'll be, they'll be sort of looking at magazines, they'll be looking at design shows on TV, um, you know, house renovation, flipping shows, that sort of thing. Yeah. And this whole time they're forming the intent to purchase and it may not have even formed even at that point. They're educating themselves about the product. A lot of our customers come in now using jargon, which is really off-putting for, for experienced <laughs> franchisees because they're not ready for that. Um, and so they'll come in using trade jargon and we'll, we'll, we'll know, well, this is clearly coming from the internet. And so um, I think increasingly uh, the other trend that we're seeing is that that's coinciding with the shifting media landscape. 
mm. where the way you speak to a customer, if you want to communicate with the customer and you know tell them all the wonderful things about Andersons, um, it's not a prescriptive formula anymore where you would you know blast TV com- TV campaigns and hit the letterbox really hard. Um, you certainly could do that, but you're really the, the customer's attention is different and their pathway is different. I think if you if you stayed entirely in that traditional media mindset, uh, you probably are bypassed by this entire customer journey that's happening absent you. So we, we all have to learn how to play in that space. Yeah. I think the, um, the other thing that we're noticing as an increasing trend in our business is the customer's really increasingly invested in supporting local owners, in supporting Australian manufacturing, and also more and more we're hearing customers express, you know, real passion about sustainability, about, about the environment, about the, the, you know, whether your product is reusable, whether, it's, um, uh, whether, you, whether you have any sustainability measures, whether you're, you have a carbon plan even. Um, and some of our franchisees are wired like that too, which is interesting. They, they get really strong opinions now, which is fantastic. Because these are, these are um, trends that tell us how the customer wants to be engaged. And luckily for us, we can engage on that territory. It's great territory for us. Um, so I think that those are some of the changes we're definitely seeing in this industry. Yeah. And as you would know, change is hard. You know, um, anything, anytime you bring about change, it's the most important and difficult thing you do as a leader. And so for me here, that's, that's, uh, that's probably the, the most value-adding thing I ever achieve if I do is to, to gradually bring those changes about in this business and in the opinions of our franchise stakeholders. How um, important do you think that digital um, transformation is really important for retail, particularly when you think about your business? I know you've done a lot of, made a lot of initi- initiatives around sort of virtual reality and being able to uh, uh, arm customers with the tools and resources to research online. Maybe if you could just talk a little bit, Rowan, around um, what you've done specifically and, and your level of um, strategic importance. Yeah, sure. I mean, selfishly, this was you know one of the key reasons I, I wanted to join the ARA was that I wanted to tap in to what other business leaders in Australia were doing and seeing and experiencing. I wanted to be I wanted to be a part of that conversation so that it, so that we could stay keep up with it. Um, when I first joined the ARA uh, what, four years ago, it was all about Amazon. You know that was that was the new topic of conversation, um, and that that got me into the NRF. So the NRF is a, a big US um, retail organisation. You could say it's the ARA counterpart in the US. Um, and uh, I've been attending the NRF big shows, which is their conference every year. And I do that, and some of it is a little repetitious, but overwhelmingly, what it brings together is the world's best um, and the world's latest retail trends. And some of those arrive in Australia, are already in Australia, and some of them are yet to arrive in Australia. And that has really steered my thinking a lot. And the other has just been my colleagues in the ARA. I asked one of them the other day about a software, and they said, don't even think about it. I was like, wow, that probably just saved me a quarter million dollars and <laughs> lousy network sentiment, you know? So mm. uh, Knowledge so is power, right? That's the whole thing. So much, so much mm. so. And so some of the trends that I do think are here to stay um, some of these apply to us, but some of them are probably more retail broad. Um, but technology is here to stay in retail. I think um, I visited an independent 
carpet store recently who had a diary that he ran his business from, and it was really cute, but it wasn't scalable. Um, I think increasingly the sophisticated use of data in business is inescapable. Um, I think also it's very powerful, and I think that power is something that Aussie retailers are, are catching on to one by one by one. Um, one of the other things I'm seeing is live streaming is a brand new thing, which is huge for brands like Estee Lauder and um, I'll probably mispronounce this, is it Moshimo? Moshimo, um, big, uh, big global clothing brand. Um, these brands are doing very well with live streaming, which is basically an infomercial on your mobile where you can click to buy right now. Um, the other trends we're seeing is in virtual try-on. So this is happening in textile, um, really impressive demonstration on this recently from a US company called Alter Beauty, which is basically um, letting ladies change the colour of their hair while they look in a mirror um, virtually to, you know, uh, photorealistic impressions of what the hair dye that they're considering will do to their hair. Um, in our case, this has got a real, uh, this augmented reality has got a real um, uh, uh, potential, I think, and that is that the Australian consumer looks at a sample and says, do you have anything a bit bigger so I can sort of really see what the room will look like? And, well, we do. We can show them on a, an augmented reality platform yes. what the whole room will look like. Um, and that technology is still new, but it's evolving at a really rapid speed. Um, I think the other thing that's coming, if it's not here already, is definitely more and more online consulting where customers will have consulting sessions with their, uh, with their retailer, uh, either in or out of hours, and it'll be live. It'll be face-to-face with a retail yeah. consultant of whether it's a design consultant or depending on, on your product category. Um, the platform that surprised me a great deal on this is um, uh, CNA in Brazil, enormous uh, organisation over there, big Dutch uh, sort of department store type concept. And um, they're getting incredible results out of um, Facebook Messenger. Yes. Using Messenger to have these, this incredible frequency of conversation with their, with their customers. Um, the other thing I mentioned, another one is that, uh, you know, the customer is better informed than ever before. So we, we're dealing with this, this information-saturated environment. Uh, at Crate and Barrel, if they put two lamps that are identical on their website, and one has an exploded view that shows all of the product information down to, you know, the, the fibre and the origin of the fibre of the lampshade. Um, they'll sell twice as much of that one at the same price. Mm. So uh, incredibly, there's this real thirst for this education and edutainment, which is uh, the nomenclature a lot of the Americans are using. Another one is this, uh, the media landscape shifting digital. Um, we're seeing that the newcomers to technology are forming habits. So um, some of our baby boomers um, are using QR codes. If you asked me if that was possible a couple of years ago, I said, not a chance. <laughs> now it's routine. And the same is true for e-commerce in that same consumer group. Um, I think that will continue. I think we're going to see more and more of our uh, retail consumers, perhaps even the unlikely ones, adopting technologies. Who knows? Maybe like a virtual reality. Yeah. Um, I think one of the other things that we are going to see is that um, you can have a shopping experience, a retail experience, just about anywhere now on your mobile phone. You're probably going to start your, your consumer journey there. Um, whether you end up there or not, you may visit a retail physical store, you might 
You might spend time on social media. You might even buy in social media. Um, you might buy on a website. You might, you might buy from some other sort of aggregator or marketplace. But one of the things that's happening is that because you have all of this exposure and experience, the best digital experience or the best total whole of retail omni experience that you have now, I believe will define the expectation you have of all of the retailers you're comparing. And so you're no longer comparing your website to your competitor's website. Now you're comparing your website to the best website they have ever visited and so on and so on. Mm. Um, I think that this, this um, glut of demand in IT is also going to bring some headaches. And one of the big trends right now is cybersecurity, where, you know, uh, phishing, um, uh, uh, hacking are all, you know, terrible potential problems, uh, ransom, ransom attacks. These are all terrible potential product, uh, problems for retailers. Um, and finally, I would say that um, sustainability, you know, this, this is a real trend. It's not a, it's not a fad. It's a trend that's here and is here to stay and is only gaining in, in momentum. Uh, and certainly we're seeing that increasingly from a real parabol- parabolic point of view, we're seeing it mainly from the youth and mainly from the boomers. It seems as though um, everyone else is catching up, but as the, as the youth are becoming a majority of the population, they're bringing with them an incredibly strong sense of values about what they're prepared to buy and who they're prepared to invest in. Uh, in a retail in a retail space, you, you raise some uh, brilliant points there. So I'm going to just shift slightly and just move now, talking a little bit more about leadership and a day in the life uh, for Rowan Hodge. What does a normal day look for you, Rowan? When do you get up? What's on the agenda? Well, look, I'm I'm an early riser, but not by not by choice. Uh, we have a sparrow that lives with us. <laughs> uh, my son Clary, who's seven, and uh, he is up before the dawn, and so. I'm just finding that's that's productive for me, whether I feel like it or not. But uh, I'm a creature of habit, so I, I really like a routine. Um, I gravitate to um, it was the uh, Vern Harnish, the Rockefeller habits, the idea of rhythm, measurement, and alignment. I think that um, for my leadership style, that's definitely the, the best fit. So um, whether my organisation likes it or not, I'm terribly Monday centric. Uh-huh. So um, we don't have travel on Mondays. Everyone comes to a team meeting on Monday. We uh, have that meeting and then we have our leadership team meeting and then we have one-on-one meetings with myself and my leadership team. Our um, whole team has incentives, KPIs, and we review those in front of the whole team, in front of their peers every Monday morning in the team meeting. That gives us a really nice sort of launch pad for the week, I think. And we, we compare ourselves then against KPIs every week. Those KPIs are renewed every quarter. And by doing that, we give our, our business a bit of a metronome around that weekly, quarterly um, return. We do a lot of our reporting monthly, but that's just because of the metrics we work to. Um, and then Tuesdays, Tuesdays onwards is all about getting out into the stores. Um, nobody's serving customers uh, in, in my warehouse um, oh. here in Gatton. It's much more important to be in the stores as much as possible. Um, uh, for me, uh, uh, if I have any spare time, uh, I want to be with my family. Um, we're renovating a house and have been, it feels like, forever. So that takes a lot of my time and means that I've got all sorts of sealants on my hands and things from, oh. from doing amateur DIY. And then um, uh, if I have any time left after that, I like to write. 
So that's my, um, that's my creative outlet. Well, we might just explore that because um, most people listening wouldn't know that you're a crime writer and you've actually have had some published books. So um, tell, us, tell us more. <laughs> um, well, I started writing because I loved doing it. Uh, I was very young. I think it was about 10 when I wrote my first book. Um, it was a choose-your-own-adventure book about gangsters, uh, which was pretty pretty ambitious subject matter for a, a 10-year-old in Townsville. But, um, uh, yeah, I've, I've always been fascinated by um, crime fiction. I enjoy that genre to read. And so um, it seemed like a pretty natural thing to, to then go across and, and start um, uh, trying to write it myself. Um, I've written and developed a couple of different characters that I, I've sort of uh, brought into a short series. Uh, one is a one is a um, an FBI uh, special investigator, and the other one is a CIA spy. So it's more in the in the mould of a James Bond type genre. Um, but that's that's the uh, that's the fun stuff that I've worked on. Uh, you know, I, I would view that as um, something to do when I'm when I'm. If ever I have, if ever I have the time and space, uh, I'm working on one right now, which is set in a small country town in a vegetable growing area. So um, check back in with me; I might be stealing some <laughs> stealing some stimulus here from my workplace. Well, there might be a big movie deal to come. Do you think, Rowan? Oh well, uh, obviously the uh, the offers have been abundant. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll shift. We'll move on from there. I think. So, I guess the, the leadership, um, just coming back to leadership. Did leadership come naturally to you? Did you always have ambitions to get to a CEO level in a business? Um, yeah, it's just a really, it's a really hard question to. It's a really hard question to to answer. I think um, I would probably say I enjoyed it. I wouldn't say I was particularly good at it. So um, I enjoyed public speaking and I enjoyed, um, uh, I enjoyed influencing. I enjoyed um, uh, setting the change agenda and, and uh, motivating people to goals. I, I liked all of that. I gobbled up the one-minute manager. I just thought that was the greatest book ever written when I was 19. Um, but I think I, – I, I wouldn't say I was particularly good at it. I think I was enthusiastic. Um, I would like to think that now I enjoy it and I'm getting better at it. Uh, but I think that I think it would be safe to say that uh, every leader is on a journey to get better and better. Yes. And most of us die of old age before we get great. <laughs> um, I, I, hope, I hope I'm a good leader, but I think you'd probably need to ask my team um, or my franchise stakeholders. They'd probably, they'd probably be um, uh, very willing to share an opinion. Well, just on that, who's been the biggest influences in your in your life, um, or there, have there been mentors that have helped you through your career? Uh, yeah, definitely they have. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very lucky. I still work with one of them. Uh, uh, he's a, a fellow who uh, supervised my franchise stores when I was up in Townsville. Uh, when I was I was making pizzas, and he'd come and visit my market. And uh, today, he's he's one of our um, key team members here at Andersons. Um, he he really showed me the the critical nature of relationship management and the power of relationship management and the the potential for destruction. Uh, you know, if you're not really tending to the emotional bank account of your of your stakeholders. Um, uh, another one's one of our um, one of our fellow uh, my fellow counsellors in the ARA council is Greg Leslie. 
um, he's the Battery World franchisee extraordinaire up in Townsville. Mm. And um, a brilliant retailer, uh, outperforms 110 other stores, um, I would guess still by double, uh, the second placed um, store in that network. Um, uncompromising customer centricity, um, willing to learn every day, even though he's not a spring chicken anymore, he's, he's absolutely got a thirst to learn more about retail and to, uh, to be more excellent at retail at all times. Um, and uh, he, he also has a uh, – he, he's been a, a frequent travelling companion for me when we, when we attend things like the NRF in New York uh, because he's another one of these guys that, that could happily sit through three days of retail um, conference sessions without, without losing attention, you know. Mm. He's, uh, he's wired like that. Um, I think another another mentor that has definitely influenced me, although I had less personal contact with him over time, but definitely his leadership style has influenced me, is definitely Don May from Domino's. Um, Don's a terrifically successful CEO and, and leader. Um, but Don has a, uh, a real sort of unstoppable, a real unstoppable momentum about him. and. Um, he uses the expression, you know, a high-volume mentality. And in his case, it's, it's an energy that he, he just emits this energy about, about volume and growth. And um, I think when you, when you find yourself willingly throw yourself under that sort of spell uh, and you make growth a default assumption, there's a few things that shake loose from that. One of them is that if you're not growing an asset, you should sell it because there's absolutely no fun or economic sense in holding something still. And if you, if you accept the opportunity cost argument that that is and say, well, yeah, my job here is to grow this thing, well, you get out of bed every day with a different attitude to, to a, a sort of management attitude. Um, I, I know that's why the board brought me here to the, the Andersons business. And mm. I, still, I think that probably still inspires me regularly now. Um, I can hear Don's words in my ears on, on, that, uh, on that sort of subject. If you had your retail career over again, is there anything you'd do differently? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I would have I would have sold that house at a profit. I would have yeah, no, no, <laughs> um, look, I, I think I probably would have sought out more mentors as a younger man. I think yeah. um, uh, I would have sought out more diverse mentors as well. I think mm-hmm. I I'm a Gen X guy and I think I grew up in an era where men ran everything and and men owned everything. And even though that wasn't true even in my lifetime they were the mentors that were most visible and so they were the voices I most heard and I, I probably would have sought a more diverse perspective for my own decision-making. Mm. Uh, it's been my experience that, that um, females make more considered decisions than men. That may not be universally true, but it's definitely been my experience. Um, I think also, uh, you know, I'm from North Queensland. We're a pretty homogenised uh, racial setup there. I think that I'd probably seek out more diverse um, views from other cultures as well. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value in those, and travelling and working overseas was very important to help me realise that. So yeah, I think I think that's probably something I'd try. Um, yeah, I think I think that I think that would answer your question. Yeah, it, has your perspectives changed as you've sat on the ARA Council, and which is quite a you know um, moving much more to a diverse set of voices? Has that helped you in framing your leadership style? Um, well, I, I would hope so. Um, I think if I think there's a certain amount of osmosis that takes place whenever leaders are in the same place, and so 
Um, you know, if I'm if I'm on a conference call or in a room with uh, uh, Jack Gantz from Chemist Warehouse, I mean, this is a tremendously successful, motivated, inspirational guy. Well, I, I don't just want to hear what he has to say. I think I'm going to soak I'm going to soak some of that up. And so I think uh, I think that that osmosis of of becoming like something by being around it. Um, I hope that's happening in the ARA Council. I, that's something I really. Uh, I really seek out in that group. Mm. And if I'm getting better at my my leadership and management, then it's probably working. Um, I, I think we've got a phenomenal um, group of talented individual leaders in that group. And I think the other thing that it's definitely not in your question, but um, the other thing I do notice about that group is that by and large, there's a, there's a certain amount of altruism in that group. The, you know, it's an unpaid board. And they're there because they love it. They love yeah. retail. And they want to contribute. And they want to see their organisation succeed. Um, they want a great retail voice. They want they want this organisation to be um, just a world beater. And um, uh, I, I think that you know they all have highs and lows. We we had a very unfortunate situation of one of our uh, one of our own council members. You know their business hit the rocks last year. And it, it really does also show they were an owner founder, and it really does show the personal nature of retail. Yeah, you know th- this is not a, um, a balance sheets and ledgers business. This is really human. Um, there's not just at the coalface, but at every level of a retail organisation, there's humans involved. Um, and so I, I think we see the best of that in the council. I think if you give yourself your younger self some advice, what would it be? Oh, definitely marry that girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one. Yes, and and I did. I'm pleased to say I, I should have done it sooner. It took me. Uh, it took me nearly three months before I proposed. That was way too long. <laughs> um, I should have been more certain on that one. Um, the other was, um, I think uh, I like to run pretty hot, but I still think fit more in. I think um, you know time is scarce, and I think we we can tend to waste time. Well, I, I certainly can. I can tend to waste time. And uh, I think I did the exercise of tallying up the minutes in a week. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, there's 10,080 minutes in a week. And my, my goal in my best week is not to waste one of those. I've never succeeded, but I, I think that that's something I would drum into my younger self is just make the most of this. Well, Rowan, some great advice there. Thanks for joining us today in the Amex Lounge for some retail therapy. Congratulations on all your success at Anderson's and best of luck for the future. Thanks very much, Paul, and thanks, Amex, for your sponsorship. It's, uh, it's the sort of support I think that the uh, Australian retail community uh, need and we, I think, have a very good relationship. Thank you. I'm pleased to be joined in the Amex Lounge by Suji Sanjeevan, co-founder of Light & Glow Designs. Suji and her husband, Jeeva, are both doctors who turn their minds to alchemy. Their whole range of award-winning luxury soy candles and scents are handcrafted in Melbourne. Light & Glow's carefully blended premium fragrances don't just smell amazing, but help you to relax, refresh, revitalise and reignite your senses. Suji, thanks for joining us. You and your husband, Jeeva, were both practising doctors before you founded Light & Glow, where you started out selling your products at market stalls. Your vision from day one has been to be well-known locally and globally. 
You've just moved into a large new warehouse on the outskirts of Melbourne and are supplying your products to stores all over Australia and now in Japan too. As an Amex Shop Small Merchant, how has the program enhanced your growth? The American Express Shop Small campaign really is an incredible movement that's been set in motion by American Express. So it's really encouraging Australians to shop small and shop locally. Small businesses really are the backbone of the Australian economy and it's great to see um, an American Express supporting us in that way. And for us, being part of Shop Small campaign as a merchant has been a no-brainer. They really do get on the ground and help us um, small businesses and we really have been a, a great beneficiary from the organic PR that's been a result of it. And throughout 2019, right up until 2022, um, American Express really has um, provided us that exposure and awareness that we've created craved as a small brand. You'll be featuring in an American Express business class podcast hosted by Mark Burris in May, which will see you chatting with Mark and Peter Winkle, the founder of Bailey Nelson, about growth and expansion. What were some of the key takeaways from this experience and have you applied them to light and glow? Uh, yes, we have, Paul. So as a brand that's moving from that startup phase to the uh, scale-up phase, exploring global expansion, developing um, our scent marketing agency. So throughout covid We took our product-based business, which is Light & Glow, um, a fragrance house into a service-based option, which is scent marketing. So we're creating custom scents for brands. So it really has opened up many doors for us. And speaking to Peter and um, Mark Boris really was an eye-opener. They're veteran business people with Yellow Brick Road and Mentored Media. And Peter's done the whole, you know, starting at markets and moving into that global expansion. So They've um, navigated those uncharted territories and weathered those storms, and so we really fed off them in that in in that kind of um, pod podcast. But in saying that, we were able to share our insights as a small business to other small businesses out there that are on that verge of you know scaling up and starting up. So uh, it really was a great uh, podcast to be a part of. Suji, thanks so much for joining us in the Amex Lounge. Sounds like a really exciting time for you and Light and & Glow. All the best for your future success. Thank you so much, Paul. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. For more information about the work we do at the Australian Retailers Association, head to our website, retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Wherever you love to connect, all the links can be found in the show notes.